you're hearing the sound of brass and not sleigh bells, but it's still the holiday time of year here at UConn 360, the only podcast in the universe that covers the University of Connecticut from every conceivable angle. It's the end of a year. We're wishing you a, a fond holiday season to you and all your loved ones and even people who aren't your loved ones. They deserve a good holiday, too. Uh, we're going to have a bit of a different show for you. Uh, we're going to take it a little easy. We know that this podcast will actually um, reach your podcast listening devices on December 25th. Open it like a present. Yeah. it's This is our present to you. And so you'll probably put this on in the background while you're having gifts with your family. Just <laughs> uh, like It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah. So uh, we just want to... Take it easy a little bit. We didn't want to. We didn't want to roll out our, uh, you know, hot new material because we know you know there's holiday stuff. You're drinking eggnog. We egg have dog. hot new material. We, well, at some point we will always. But we do want to bring you a special treat. Yes. Looking back on our favorites from the year. That's right. We finally reached the point where we can do a clip show. <laughs> it's not exactly a clip show. We're going to rerun a couple of one of my favorites of my segments and one of Ken's favorites of his segments. And we have a new Tom's History Corner. It's Yeah, it's not a good one, though. It's I like real hastily cobbled wow, together. Wow, you're really <laughs> selling it. Okay, great. No, no one's listening to this. It's Christmas, <laughs> it's Christmas Day. It's right epi- in. But it's the big episode 49 with they the big right. 5-0 coming they up. They can listen to it whenever they want. It's out for all of eternity now. Wow, eternity. Eternity, oh, yes. Shrieking into eternity. Here we are <laughs> with some of our favorite stories from 2019, right? We didn't go back any farther. No, just 2019. No, and, and if we want to do a slight review of what we had, we started with women's basketball and pain management and a raiding party to save Jonathan the Fourth in January of this year. And then we heard things like engineering students repairing the Keeney Memorial Clock. That's what we're going to hear again today. Okay, and we heard about trash talk at one point, and then we had the mystery of the first woman to attend classes at UConn. And uh, Maxine... Uh, took over for Halloween and talked to us about the Yukon Horror Club. So mm-hmm. that's a couple of the highlights for this year. We, we logged 24. This will be our 25th episode right? In, uh, in 2019. It was a big year for us. We didn't take any time off. We did not. We presented at two national conferences about our podcast. Mm-hmm. We also talked with some uh, peer institutions um, remotely which, over the phone, which is what I mean. Also by a video conference, though. <laughs> Right? Yes, we did video conferences. Uh, as far away as Canada. As far away as Canada. Very cool. McGill University. Shout out to McGill University. You may have heard of it. Um, and Maxine, we, we were joined by a student worker who's not here today. She's uh, taking a well-deserved break. Finals are over. Mm-hmm. Class doesn't start up again for her until the 21st of January, I think. So uh, it was a big year for UConn 360. It was. Making moves. Making moves. Well, why don't we relive some of our favorite 2019 memories? We'll start off with Julie. So I'm going to look back on the Keeney Clock Tower story, which is about a group of engineering seniors from last year. Every senior in the engineering program has to do a senior design project. So they're assigned a real-world problem, and they work with a real company, or in this case, a real municipality and nonprofit organization. And I really love this story because it shows the impact that UConn students are making on the world. And it also was a good opportunity to use a lot of cool different sound. 
We talk a lot about the real-world experience UConn students get, and that real-world experience doesn't just benefit these students, Tom. It benefits companies, it benefits the government, it benefits local neighborhoods like in Hartford. One of the largest efforts that allows UConn students to help real entities is the Senior Design Project, which is something that every engineering student has to complete before they graduate. Every year, more than 800 students team up to complete more than 200 projects, working with over 100 partners in industry and government to help them solve pressing problems through smart and engineering. They're presented with dozens of projects and they have to take personality tests and then rank their top five choices before they're randomly assigned to groups to complete a project. This year, one of the most coveted projects for mechanical engineering majors was the Keeney Memorial Clock Tower restoration. The lucky students assigned to this group were Henry Corshane, Garrett Murphy, and Spencer Paget. Before these students completed their work this April, the clock in the historic tower in the north end of Hartford had been stopped and its chimes silent for four years. Here it is. Do you hear it? That's Henry Hester on the day of the unveiling this April. He's vice president of the Friends of Keeney Park and sponsor of the Yukon Senior Design Project to restore the Keeney Memorial Clock Tower. The 130-foot tower on the site of Walter and Henry Keeney's wholesale grocery store is part of the Brothers' lasting legacy, which also includes the nearby 693-acre Keeney Park. The Friends of Keeney Park formed about three decades ago, according to Hester, and have worked with the city and other groups like the Keeney Park Sustainability Project to honor their downtown North neighborhood's history. This clock tower means to the city that they understand clearly what the Keeney family have left them to take care. And with the collaboration of Yukon, is community engagement, it has worked well. I'm big on collaboration, getting people out of silos and working as a team. And this has been a great team effort. And it's all about continuing to create the energy in the city. The students said they were drawn to the project for its hands-on nature, the ability to get out of the theoretical work of the classroom and use the technical skills they've acquired to build and repair a tangible thing. Team member Henry Corshane said the fact that they can drive by the tower and point to it, showing the work they did to restore this piece of history, was an added bonus. Definitely the fact that the clock tower is in the middle of Hartford or in that in the community itself. We could work on something that helped us be a part of that and kind of improve the area as well just was a really special opportunity as opposed to working on something super small and niche. There's a big, big spotlight on this this project for years to come. According to Hartford Mayor Luke Bronin, there will literally be a big spotlight on the tower for years to come. It really is an amazing thing that as you drive down this intersection, this is the main intersection in our city, that this beautiful historic structure is right here. And I think all too often just kind of escapes notice. As large as it is, as magnificent an example of, I think, what they call collegiate Gothic architecture as it is, we just kind of forget it. Well, now that it's going to ring again and chime again and keep the clock, we're going to make sure that we're highlighting it. And so this morning I called over and said, we need to make sure that we light this tower up so that when you drive down at night and you come down Albany or Maine, you see this tower as a symbol of our city, of our history, of the partnerships that are moving us forward. And to everybody who's a part of that, I want to say thank you. The Senior Design Project lasts for an engineering student's entire senior year. Spencer Paget said once the team was assigned to the Clock Tower Project in September, they started the process by getting to know each other's strengths and to gel as a team. We went up there several times just to look at the thing and figure out how it worked, how it moved, what's broke, what's not broke, kind of all that stuff. So it started with a lot of, I guess, dissection of what was up there and a lot of pulling stuff apart, getting everything we needed in order. Over the like late fall, winter, it was a lot of consulting with clock professionals, people who restore these things for a living, companies who put together equipment packages for all the clocks, and then starting to make plans for uh, fabricating all our own parts, and then 
In the spring, it was a lot of fabricating, ordering, and installing. Determining how to get the clock running again allowed the students to employ everything they'd mastered in their engineering educations up to that point. It also required a fair amount of ingenuity, Garrett Murphy explained. The parts were unfortunately missing when we got to the clock tower. They had been removed at some point. So we had, in the sense of an original design, we had nothing to go on. So we had to kind of come up with our own design based off of what we knew they had to do rather than what an old set did. And that meant that we had to come up with a preliminary design, and we actually used 3D printing to print it out of plastic first, bring it to the tower, test fit it, notice any adjustments that need to be made, bring it back, make those adjustments in CAD, print it again, go back. Um, And we probably did that anywhere between two to three times, depending on which of the three linkage arms we were working on. And then once we had the final design, we were able to make them out of 6061 aluminum and put those in as the final, final set. I sat in front of that mechanism for probably just three hours just to figure out how it worked, never mind what I had to then design to make it work again. And our advisor, Professor Tom Mealy, towards the end of the project, when I and I brought the finalized one, I put them in, and he was there one day, and I was kind of adjusting them, tuning them, and it was funny because he had this light bulb moment where it just clicked, and he went, how did you get this right on the first shot? You know, And I said, well, it didn't, wasn't the first shot. And he's like, yeah, but you got it right on the first aluminum ones you made. And he, he kind of just realized how much actually went into it. So that was definitely the most difficult part for me. And as it goes through the catches, it goes tooth, 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 until right there where it falls. Shuts it off. That and shuts it off. Nice. So that's this side. Yeah, everything else was, was a matter of kind of just specking out parts, you know, trying to figure out what requirements we needed. We had to change a few, make a few design changes overall, but that was definitely, you know, we had no documentation, no drawings, nothing to go off of there. So, you know, before the motor right, right, out right, of here, right, so right. it would reverse direction, now we don't. So that was a consideration, but then it, it says right in the thing we can That linking it all back up and tinkering so it's just right is... You know, I spent multiple days after they were installed just making minute adjustments, you know, maybe go off a minute earlier here, go off a minute later there. Being from Connecticut but not being from Hartford or the area, it was surprising to me as we were working on the project just how much restoring the, the clock and that park means to the community around it. The working clock means to the community that the city is alive because they can hear it is tangible. And with this piece that they can see and touch, it's a way of seeing what the Keeney family left to us to take care of forever. There was a nice number of people who were there to see the unveiling and were there for the event and you know, listen to the mayor speak and all that. We had a couple people who were just walking around and going on you know, their daily walk through the area and noticed the crowd and then heard the chimes and everything and they came up to us and said thank you and they haven't heard it ring for years and we're not even sure which bells they heard ringing in the past because there's a couple different systems up there but either way it was really special to see that these people cared. This is a good piece to kind of uh, emphasize some of the good stuff that's happening in the city, and the city is alive and well. Well, the the chimes are available for this holiday season in Hartford now. That's there right. You go. It's a result that's true. Of, all of this. Yeah. Absolutely. Ken, what what's your favorite look back story? Well, it's always great to hear Terrence Mann, the 
Broadway star, who's the artistic director of the Nutmeg Summer Theater, and Matt Pugliese, who was our very first guest on the podcast. That's right. And who has recently stepped down from his position at oh, CRT. I didn't He's know that. Uh, moving on. He's now. Uh, Broadening his interest in community service and, and economic development with the Connecticut Small Business Development uh, uh, Center. Uh, so still kind part of part of, of UConn. Part of UConn. Okay. And he uh, has been serving uh, on the Economic Development Commission in Old Saybrook where he lives. So he's, he's really uh, getting into the nonprofit and small business area uh, to, to help other people. So that's, that's great. But we did have a great discussion about jukebox musicals with Terrence Mann and Matt Pugliese. Mamma Mia is classified as a jukebox musical by those who write about it, but it's not necessarily an accurate term all the time to shows on Broadway that have a pop music soundtrack that may not be connected to the songs or even uh, we were talking about creations like Tommy and Hair that were original productions. They're not just songs. They have a theme and they're, they're really tied together. How do you define jukebox musical if that's what this is? To me, when you say a jukebox musical, it's almost pejorative. It's almost like you're dissing it. Almost like, oh, well, it's a jukebox musical because the music came out of the jukebox. It came out of, of source material, material that's already been written. And the stories. And then they just put a, they tried to put a, a play, a book, a libretto around all of these songs and have it make sense. And, you know, sometimes it succeeds and sometimes they don't succeed. We got to figure out maybe a different way to describe musicals that have come along that certainly could be classified as songs that have come out of recorded source music uh, a la jukebox, but that it's been, in, you know, take for instance, Tommy. Name some others. I see you got your paper there. Well, there's the night, night that made America famous, which uh, on, mm-hmm. under Wikipedia, the Harry Chapin uh, show that was on Broadway, Beatlemania, which was the, be- the second one with the Beatles. Now, my question: Beatlemania has a book attached to it where they talk about their, their lives and how they became the Beatles and all of that. Uh, or yes. is it just getting? Or is it what they used to call crossovers in musical theater? How do we get? How do we say a little something that gets us to the next song? That becomes a different concept, and I think a different genre to be defined. Because that's like the musical reviews, like the music of Rodgers and Hammerstein, like a whole evening of the same. Correct. I think that's right. Yeah. Ken Davenport, who's a Broadway producer, uh, several years ago did his definition of a jukebox musical, which you can find online. His definition is a jukebox musical is an original stage musical not based on a film that uses previously recorded or released popular songs that have no direct relation to the story as its musical score. So it's an original story, but the music doesn't necessarily tie to the plot of the story. The early rock and roll films, kind of the first videos, were a very thin storyline with Chuck Berry and a lot of the contemporary rock and rollers of the 50s era that Alan Freed and some other folks looking to make a, a buck uh, in, in another medium mm-hmm. started coming out with those st- stories to get the music out to the public, which contrasts with what in the Wikipedia listing as the films that start out as jukebox musicals, they begin with Jimmy Cagney 
as George M. Cohan and Yankee Doodle Dandy. It's kind of a definition that is open for discussion as we're doing. Well, I was going to say, hasn't there always been crossover, though, between the theater in terms of music and the American popular music songbook? If you go back to Cole Porter or Irving Berlin. Right. Used to be the popular music of the day was a lot of musical theater crossovers, a lot of you know songs that came out of Showboat, that came out of Oklahoma, that came out of any Cole Porter or Irving Berlin, you know, musicals or Rodgers and Hammerstein, you know, or um, so all of that was the popular music and that was on the radio. Then after rock and roll came in and took over, it crossed over into its own genre. You know, it created its own genre. So there's a distinction there. Right. And if you look at the list of musical films, as I said, they start with Yankee Doodle Dandy, but include Meet Me in St. Louis. Yeah. American yeah. in Paris, Singing in the Rain. So in your mind, Mamma Mia is a jukebox musical of sorts? If we're using that as a, the, uh, the, the umbrella definition for those particular rules of engagement, yes, that ju- it would be considered a jukebox musical. In as much as it's songs that were written, and then they said, let's, let's, do, let's put a story around it. You know, let's write a play. But the thing about Mamma Mia, and I saw it in London right after it opened, the thing about it was, I think, separates it from all others, is that you know that they are winking and nodding at you from the stage when they're going through this book and how they get to the next song. And that's what's charming and compelling about it and makes you laugh. And yet it's still poignant and, and, and touching. As a form of musical, which I guess we could, if we're going to classify different forms of, of, of the genre. Take of argument. We went down the list again before we started talking about the number of so-called jukebox musicals that have been on Broadway and appeared on Broadway over the years, nine throughout the 90s, eight in the year 2005, 10 in 2006, and last year, nine on Broadway. In your mind, as someone who's been in these productions for years, uh, is that a good thing or a bad thing for these so-called jukebox musicals to replace the original idea of musical, which is a book and songs that are original and everything comes together nicely. I think you have to track it all the way back to the producers and the people who are putting the money up to see things happen on Broadway. When we had the um, British Invasion and Cameron McIntosh and Andrew Lloyd Webber and Trevor Nunn and, and then Claude Michel Schoenberg with Les Mis, they all came over and they started doing these musicals that all of a sudden were sustaining themselves for not only five, ten 15, but 20 years. So all of these people that were, would, would, would have been investors, you know, all of a sudden they saw the long game in terms of investing, that they could make money. So that created a whole other community of investors who decided to come in and say, oh, if I can put money into that and it runs long enough and it's got enough cachet, then we'll be able to make money on that. So fast forward to over the last, it started in the 90s, as you said, but I think you've got producers sitting around going, how can we find that lightning in a bottle? And how can we, you know, grab that and maybe have some legs with it? And at the end of the day, it all deserves to be there. It gives jobs to people. There's a lot of talent up there. You want to hear those songs. What you want to know more than anything else is how are you going to put that story together that's going to make it last and, that, and, and make you care about sitting in the audience and make other people care for the next 20 years sitting in the audience. That doesn't happen very often. It seems we've got a dearth of folks that don't want to produce or go out and champion new works. And that, to me, is, is, is a sad uh, commentary. Well, Mamma Mia is a show that has gone on. It's been out there for a, yeah. a very long time now, and there's several others. 
that have been in that category. What is it that has captured people's imagination and keeps it out there? Because this band was only together for 10 years. Here again, it's that lightning in a bottle. Right place, right time, right sound, right combination. And, you know, and somebody just took it and ran with it. Plus, they wrote great songs for what our ears wanted to hear at the time and what we wanted to feel at the time. And that still sustains us today. It, it, we know because if you're a baby boomer, then you grew up going through changes like we were talking about earlier. You know, you went through the rock and roll of the 50s and you went through the early stuff then the, um, the, the wall of sound and then you went into rock and, and Led Zeppelin that changed the paradigm and then into, and then you got to the mid mid. 70s and you got earth wind and fire every it was just such a melding pot an, an unbelievable kind of kaleidoscope of uh, of music and all of a sudden here they pop up so to be able to be sustained that long we just decided that they were that good another fact that uh probably is not in the memory bank but again i find these things and i know you like to hear this stuff this production has been in more than 50 countries on all six continents except for antarctica it's been everywhere <laughs> We have a big announcement. (laughs) (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, we'll be traveling south. I like those those pieces very much. Those are definitely highlights of the year. Um, It's been a good year for UConn, too. I just want to take a quick moment to sort of reflect on what we've uh, accomplished at UConn. President Herbst retired this mm-hmm. year, and President Katsileas started, got a new president. We have a new president of the foundation. Soon we'll have a new provost. Lots of change. A lot of new faces uh, at UConn. I think it's been overall a pretty good calendar year. I think so, too. Yeah. You know, I've been, uh, for the last several months, I've been filling in as editor of the UConn Today website. have been filling in as a lot of things. It's true. Busy man. Um, The previous editor, Elizabeth Amara Otunu, took a well-deserved retirement and is hopefully enjoying post-UConn life Mm -hmm. on some exotic locale. Um, (laughs) Mansfield. (laughs) I have have not uh, done as good a job as her, but I've I've kept the lights on. So I started to think about uh, UConn Today. What's the history of UConn Today, right? So interestingly... The origins of UConn today, and really this is a time of year when we think about new beginnings and beginnings, right? Mm -hmm. The beginnings of UConn today actually were a newspaper, of course, because the internet did not exist until uh, I believe 2015 was when the internet was invented. (laughs) I'll fact check that. Only facts here at UConn 360. Um, I think that might be needed to be fact checked. Really, Ken? I don't know about that. Um, Well, Maxine's not here, so who's going to do it? Uh, In 1970 – the administration launched sort of the prototype of what became UConn today, a weekly newspaper called the University of Connecticut Chronicle or no. the Ukron. <laughs> Why? Yeah. Why do we do this to ourselves constantly? <laughs> so there's a story from the Daily Campus that I thought was pretty interesting, kind of going into the thinking behind the, the University uh, uh, of Connecticut Chronicle, the Ukron. Um, <laughs> The editor was uh, at the time was Donald Friedman, who was director of the Office of Public Information. Uh, and actually, he and his wife, there's a scholarship named for them, for a journalism scholarship. Oh, cool. They sort of uh, still very much present in the life of the university. And uh, he talked about how it was essentially a way for the university to get information to people like uh, freshman orientation information, uh, things about changes to the grading system, that kind of thing that he thought the daily campus would be too boring for the daily mm. campus or maybe – they could do a much longer job than Daily Campus would. Um, there was a lot of concern that this would be like a, a mouthpiece of the administration. Right. But uh, Friedman uh, favorably cited uh, an editorial in the Hartford Times, another 
Baigan newspaper, saying that the Ukraine had no perspective at all, which is actually kind of, when you think about it, not, maybe not the best thing in the world. But it was interesting. It cost about $17,000 a year to publish. Wow. Uh, it was published by the Willimantic Chronicle. Mm-hmm. I don't know if the Daily Campus is still published by them, but it certainly was It when was, I was there. recently. I mean, when I was here, too. So I was curious, who produced the Ukraine? Like, they didn't have a dedicated staff at that point. Uh, Friedman... <laughs> Friedman described the staff as makeshift, which I guess probably fits for university (laughs) communications today. He said the paper is presently being published by publications office personnel along with one graduate student, Mary Elizabeth Dowd, undergraduate Donna Strout, and Diane Cox, a faculty member's wife. (laughs) Volunteer. Volunteer. To speak on behalf of the university. Um, But anyway, so I'll actually try to track down some copies of the Ukron. Later, it became the Advance, which we're more familiar with. Mm Mm-hmm. It was the advance until the decision was made to move everything online, which was probably 10 years ago, mm-hmm. something like that. The Ukron almost sounds like an internal newsletter, whereas the advance is a little more outward facing. No, that was really the on-campus newspaper. It was for faculty and staff primarily. There was some expectation that students might see it, but it was distributed in everyone's mailbox with a label for every member of the faculty and staff. I think what I'm getting at is that sounds like it's more like things you need to know about the administration, whereas the advance and UConn today are a little bit more news about the university. Yes, I think. Well, I haven't seen a copy of the UConn, so I have to (laughs) to find it. I have to find the UConn. That name is just so good. And, and of course, UConn today, I think, is different from the advance in that UConn today is a general interest website. We're telling our own story. Mm Mm-hmm. Because there are far fewer journalists working than there used to be. Unfortunately. Unfortunately. So really check out UConn today. That's today.uconn.edu. This is just a shameless plug. And we've gone from this little newspaper to podcasts yes. to get the news out. The, the Ukron was the germ uh, that, that contained the seed that has blossomed into an, an orchard of understanding. <laughs> With so many different projects. That's video, a really good metaphor. <laughs> video, <laughs> podcasts, websites. Amazing. Bus ads. We're just navel-gazing today. <laughs> although, uh, although, as we have described in our presentation, the idea was a bit ahead of its time at one point, and we caught up with it. Yes. Sure. It's true. Well, I'm sure that uh, everyone stopped listening when I started talking, so <laughs> that's fine. Just um, like every week. Just like every week. Happy holidays, yes. you guys. On behalf of all of us here at UConn 360, I'm Tom Breen, of course. You didn't introduce us. No, I'm Julie Bartuka. Happy New Year, everybody. I'm Ken Best. Happy New Year. Happy Kwanzaa. Happy, Happy Hanukkah. Hanukkah. And yep. Merry Christmas. And whatever else you may celebrate. Yes, Happy Festivus, Holidays. Festivus for everyone yes, else. I will be um, airing my grievances in the new year. Well, great. Something to look forward to. <laughs> Seinfeld reference. Oh, yes, of course. The, the irony of this is a guy who interviewed Seinfeld, didn't like him at all, and never watched the show, made the Festivus reference. Oh. That being me. <laughs> you just had to get in that you interviewed Seinfeld, didn't you? <laughs> We're going to have a nice break from each other if, over winter break. If you want even more of this. <laughs> <laughs> Which you, I can't imagine why you wouldn't. You can follow us uh, on Twitter at Yukon Podcast or uh, at old underscore main. Where nope. Main underscore old. Thank you. At main underscore old. <laughs> where, it's uh, been a long year, It folks. has been a long year. It's been, I'm so tired. 
Um, we have the 50th episode to get ready for, though, in a couple of weeks. Oh, you know. All right. Well, <laughs> thanks for listening. Happy New Year, everyone. <laughs>